Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host as always. Good to have you here with me. This week on the show, I'm welcoming Eric Henry Anderson. You may know him from the local band The Novelists, from last year's Heartbeat to Heartbeat Eye to Eye music video, which was produced as part of Art Town, and just as one of the most active, hardworking musicians here in Reno. This episode is all about local music, about being a musician, making that your career, how Eric got interested in music and learned the instruments that he plays and got involved in making music for a living. It was a great conversation. I learned a lot. I was really excited to have an episode about local music. We've talked a little bit about local art on this show, but this is the first time that I've had a whole episode about music, both as a career and Reno specifically, music venues, opportunities for musicians here. Really great conversation. Really hope that you enjoy it as well. As most of my listeners know, I host trivia for DJ Trivia at local venues around town. I hope that you'll come play soon if you haven't played DJ Trivia yet. It's a lot of fun. It's free to play. There's prizes to be won. We have venues all over town, probably one in your neighborhood. We have games Sunday through Thursday at various bars and restaurants. Check out DJTriviaNevada.com to find the locations nearest you. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is my favorite local news source. There's a lot going on in town that doesn't always get covered on the TV news or in our local newspapers, but This Is Reno really does have great reporting on everything that's happening in town. Go to thisisreno.com. You can subscribe there. Also, I sign up for their daily newsletter that has the headlines and articles straight to my email box. So check that out, thisisreno.com. And as always, my email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. If you have any guest suggestions, ideas for topics you want to hear about, feedback about the show, get in touch. I'm also on social media, at renoites on Facebook and Instagram. Shoot me a message over there. I always love to talk to listeners. It's a lot of fun. So please feel free to reach out. And now this week's guest, Eric Henry Anderson. Eric Henry Anderson, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Connor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about music. I haven't had a local music episode yet. I've kind of touched on music a little bit with Bob Conrad in the first episode, talked about being a drummer, and we talked about Reno's kind of music scene a little bit. And I've had several arts-related episodes. So I did an Art Town episode and talked to us here at Arts Foundation, but I haven't done an episode specifically about music in Reno with a local musician. Okay. So it's exciting to talk to you and kind of learn about what you do here in Reno in the music world and some of your thoughts about Reno kind of as a music city. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I think a great place to start is to learn a little bit about your music history. So you started playing viola, but now you play piano. You've been in bands. You've been a solo artist. You have kind of like a broad musical background. Can you talk a little bit about what got you interested in music and kind of your path to becoming a full-time like professional musician, why you made that your career? Yeah. You know, as far as how it became a career, the, the truth to that is that it really just sort of happened. I mean, my participation in music, you, you know, as an activity, as an art form was definitely much more intentional than that. But the way that it became my job really did happen by accident. When I was uh, at school here in UNR, I was absolutely just, uh, obsessed would be an understatement, I guess, with with playing the piano and singing and writing songs and just music in general. And it wasn't necessarily just pop music and rock music. 
I mean, I was playing in the orchestra at that time and it was, it was just music. I mean, it just, it, it's, uh, it's being that age is just an incredibly exciting, it's an incredibly exciting age to be anyway. So whatever it is that you're passionate about, it's, it's easy to be extremely passionate about that. At least that was my experience. But going back to how I started, I started on the viola in fourth grade. It was just one of these days at the school, the public school system, where they let you try out various instruments. They had, you know, band director and orchestra director. And uh, I mean, I think there was the same sort of recruitment efforts from the choir, but that was always a little bit less of a, of a commitment for parents or anybody because you didn't have to have an instrument, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember it was the day that um, we got to try out various wind instruments and woodwinds and string instruments and everything. It was, it was sort of this friendly competition too, you could tell from the band director and the orchestra director because, you know, they <laughs> they all not only did their passions and their jobs depend on having students, but I could sense it at that point. There was like this little friendly competition of certainly anybody they could identify with any sort of talent at all was like, I want that kid, you know? But, <laughs> right. But um, so I, I mean, trying the string instruments, I, I really remember just thinking string instruments were cool. I wanted to, wanted to, which is an interesting, interesting thing, you know, to, to think that, that they're cool because string instruments are very cool, but a lot of times in fourth grade, they're not necessarily viewed as all that cool, but I didn't care about any of that crap. I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to play. And I'm not exactly sure why I was drawn to the viola over the violin or the cello. It may have been this part in me that just was kind of trying to be just a little bit of a rebel and just be a little bit different because everybody wants to play the violin. Mm -hmm. The orchestra director was thrilled with that because nobody ever wants to play the viola, which means they never have enough violists in their orchestra. So everything's always out of balance and they and have to try to convince violinists and, and other people to come play the viola. So mm-hmm. that was great. And it was and I, and I can tell you, I immediately had a connection to the orchestra director who went on to be one of the main role models in my life. I actually gave the eulogy at his funeral. I guess at this point, it's 10 years ago, but he ended up teaching me private lessons all through high school and even beyond that. So but even then in fourth grade, I had I could tell I had this connection with this with this man, Dr. Xander, uh, immediately. But I had to kind of beg my parents to let me play the viola because uh, my older brother had played drums and I think trumpet for a little while. But playing the drums was the the major, um, I guess, psychological issue to overcome for my parents because small house, 10-year-old playing the drums, I'll tell you what, that would take the most patient of parents to allow that skill to get to any point where it was even listenable. And even beyond that, even if you have like you know, your son might be the, the most killing passionate drummer available, but like say goodbye to your peace and quiet, like forever. So they were a little bit scarred by that. And, um, I remember Dr. Xander had to more or less convince them over several phone calls, like, you know, just, just give me a few weeks, you know, we'll just see how this goes. And, you know, I, I, I feel like your son might have uh, some talent here. And of course my mom's going like, give me a break. Like, come on, dude, how can you tell somebody has a talent and an instrument? You hand them this string instrument and it sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a squealing cat, you know, um, which it does actually for years as in an orchestra too. That's another thing. Like, I mean, there is no greater punishment than to subject somebody to listening to an elementary school orchestra because Mm. it, it takes a long time before it's not like a piano where like if you hit the right key or you hit the right chord, like it generally sounds pretty good, mm-hmm. you know. It's like you're you're trying to make a, a sound on a non-fretted string instrument, and it takes, I would say, three or four years before it's anything that anybody wants to hear. But anyway, that's good. I think that part of the 
thing that I'm always impressed by with musicians is this skill developed over time that takes a lot of dedication and practice before you are actually good at it. I'm a quitter when things get hard. I learned piano when I was a kid and I got kind of okay. But then as soon as it gets to that point where you need to actually be really good, where you have to have kind of the fine motor skills and like the the technical ability to actually be good, that's another leap. It's another level. You can learn to read music a little bit. You can learn the basics, but then getting to actually be good at something takes this level of of dedication to it. You said your brother played drums. Are you from a musical family in general? You said your parents were a little worried about the noise level and things, but did they encourage you to pursue music? And what was your environment like around music growing up? Right. Well, I, I, no is the short answer to whether I had came from a musical family. I mean, we, we kind of dug into this a bit once it was clear that this was a major passion of mine. And, you know, there's a great grandfather on my dad's side who was a, a classical pianist back in Norway. But no, I mean, not traditionally speaking. My mom has always loved music and has a deep, deep appreciation for it. And so music was on all the time growing up. And of course, the type of music that's played is going to be representative of the culture, obviously, that you grow up in and your parents for the most part. But I would like to think it was good music. You know, I mean, there was a my mom still to this day when she's cleaning the house, she'll bounce around with classical music on. So, I mean, it was... um there was classical music, you know, there was Elton John, you know, there was um, there was actually a lot of ABBA because both my parents are Norwegian. So where I'm sure that would seem like not exactly the the music that many would uh, would love. I mean, I have no problem admitting. I think that that group wrote some of the, the catchiest melodies ever. And e- even to the extent that people find it annoying, they can't they're they're talking about how it's annoying while they're walking out of the coffee shop singing Dancing Queen and wishing wishing they couldn't. But Anyway, the point. Anyway, yeah. the point oh, no. is, <laughs> I love Abba. I would have been happy yeah. to be raised in a house with Abba playing all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was, um, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was a fairly wide range of music, but music was on all the time. And what I will say is, while my parents didn't come from any musical background, they definitely appreciated music, and they're great parents in the sense that they were all about fostering and encouraging any talent or just interest that both myself and and my brother had. So once we got past like the second month, then they were all in. Maybe it was even the second week. I don't know. But but the, the, the you know, the, the encouragement came quickly. Mm-hmm. So piano is your main instrument now, right? When did you kind of fall in love with piano and decide that was what you really wanted to pursue as your main musical focus? Yeah. You know, um, again, sort of how I even came upon doing this professionally, it just sort of came together. I remember I was playing the piano in the orchestra room in elementary school we knew exactly where the A440 key was and we would press the A440 key and that's how we would learn to tune our instrument. So I was always around pianos. I was probably like 14 years old when I started actually playing the piano with any sort of intention and any major intrigue. But I should also mention that I was probably preconditioned to it in a way that wasn't necessarily obvious. At the time, a man who's become one of my dearest friends and mentors, a guy by the name of Kostya Efimov, He's a, a fantastic musician, piano player, keyboard player, and he was actually a family friend growing up. So his music and a lot of those albums that my mom would play from Kostia were instrumental music, just gorgeous piano compositions. And so I was also really influenced by that in a way that I don't think I was necessarily consciously aware of. But around 14, I just for some reason, I gravitated towards the piano. And it was also probably no coincidence that one of my best friends had introduced me to Ben Folds, who has gone on to be one of my very favorite artists of all time, too. So between 
between the messages I was getting without, you know, unintentionally receiving from from friends with with Ben Folds and Costia and, you know, Billy Joel and all this stuff, it just kind of hit me very quickly. And then probably by the time I was 15, I was skipping class to play piano and I was learning all of their songs and I was writing my own songs. And I was even writing instrumental music because the beauty about the piano is that from the left to the right of the piano, you have the full harmonic range of the orchestra. So whereas piano and guitar, I would say, are equally convenient instruments when one is trying to write a song. And piano is even better in the sense that you have a wider harmonic range and it extends a little bit more beyond, like, I guess, kind of what you'd think of as folk music or pop rock music. You know, you, you're, you're holding the guitar and that's like the instrument that somebody grabs at a party and it's a sing-along thing around mm-hmm. the campfire and there's something beautiful about that. But the piano is like all of that as well, but I think it even extends their levels of, uh, I don't know, interest and complexity there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I gravitate towards the piano. And it, and then it became my main instrument sort of by accident, because as I was singing and writing songs, that was the instrument that I was singing from and writing from mm-hmm. and skipping class to obsess over. You know, I play the guitar here and there a little bit, but that it's kind of been more of a songwriting tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the viola, I actually have one now. I didn't have one for years, but I haven't played it all that much recently, but I'm trying to think of ways I can kind of incorporate it into what I'm doing. And it's, I mean, as a musician, you're playing multiple instruments. It's just a matter of time, just a a person in this world. It's like, what do you do with your time? And there's, there's only so much of it. And there, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like being a multi-instrumentalist is a lot of work to learn multiple instruments, but does it give you more range and more ability to do a variety of different types of music, having the ability to play multiple instruments? Like, what's the trade-off there in terms of the investment of your time and energy to learn other instruments and to be able to play them versus spending that time writing on the instruments that you already know and that you're that you're comfortable with? Well, that question itself is something that I ponder a lot, have pondered historically and, and continue to because I don't really even know what the answer, because a lot of times I'm like, man, I feel like I, if I just logged a few more hours on the acoustic guitar, I could really be quite a credible guitar player. But I also have that pedal board over there I've hardly opened since I bought. And I really want to work on these certain vocal technique things. And I have all these songs that are half written. So it's something that I don't necessarily know I have a great answer for. It's just, it, it just begs another question, which is like, what do you want to do with your time? And as a piano player, I'm definitely at the level where I can express myself as somebody who's accompanying my art form, which is, you know, very broadly speaking, somewhere in the pop rock, folk, um, singer songwriter realm. So it's not like I need to be like the very most skilled piano player ever. I mean, if I were to be able to play Rachmaninoff, that would be really cool, but it's not actually going to matter at all, in fact, as far as what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's it's not that there isn't intention and some complexity in what I'm playing, especially the way I sing. It's it's uh, it's certainly not Rachmaninoff, but it's also not. It's well beyond the most basic rudimentary level of just plunking out some chords. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I play the guitar, I feel like I'm much more in that camp. Where it's like some of the songs I'll play on guitar that I'll play in live performance settings, I certainly do them in a way that's credible enough to hold the instrument. I mean, if it wasn't, I, I wouldn't do that in a professional setting, but my vocabulary on that instrument is way more limited. Yeah, I get that. I'm sure that there's this balance of how you spend your time and what you want to invest in, especially if you are focused on 
on performing and on writing, like you don't always necessarily have the time to perfect an instrument that you might not get the most out of. Sure. Right. Well, and you, and you could, and it's just another thing is about learning multiple instruments. There's a certain process that you um, become familiar with. And I think it's broadly applicable just in life, which is just, you learn how to learn well, Mm -hmm. you learn certain techniques that actually can apply to numerous modalities. And it's like, okay, well, but it's still a time thing. So even if you're doing it well, it's like, I mean, do I really want to be like the very best piano player I could be? Some days I wake up feeling that I wish I could, but I realize that that also comes at the cost of singing, writing songs. I mean, the part that's a little bit less romantic to talk about, but I find to be interesting and is like it or not extremely important as as an independent musician is there's also this business element of your career. And if you Mm -hmm. totally neglect that, your life is going to be harder than it would otherwise be. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it seems like being a musician is this whole process of balancing different priorities, both in terms of the music that you're creating, how you're spending that time, whether it's writing and preparing songs or performing. You've been in local bands, so you've worked in a band environment, but you're also a solo artist, so you work both independently and with other people. I'm sure that there's benefits to both of those things. That's actually a question I was wondering about is what do you gain from kind of the band experience and working collectively with people? And what about working independently? Like, are there benefits to both of those things? You've had a lot of experience in both environments. Can you talk a little bit about the like pluses and minuses of collaboration versus working independently? Sure. Yeah. I mean, both experiences are beautiful and there are are pros and cons to each. I, I find, you know, I spent a long time just about a decade as a member of the Novelists, which is a, a you know a, a local group here, which consisted of myself, Joel Ackerson, and Zach Turan for the entirety of that time, and then there were various other members that that came uh, into the fold, and that really was a collaborative band in so many ways, in most ways, as songwriters, as arrangers, as producers, as managers and creators of a vision. It really was a collaborative thing. There's so much beauty to that. There's also necessarily restriction to it too, because you don't get to just execute exactly what your vision is. And I'm not sure that any is necessarily better or worse. I think both are just really interesting experiences that are worth having if you can. And at this point, I am focused mainly on my solo career, which is really exciting in the sense of I really do have the freedom to make pretty much any of the creative and vision business decisions that I choose. But there also is at least a slightly limited collaborative experience there. I think there's still ways you can build it in though, because I mean, certainly the musicians I'm working with, you know, we show up to a session where we're working on a song. There's still collaborative writing. A lot of, uh, a lot of the guys in my, my various projects are still getting, writing credit when they're co- contributing things and when we're producing music it's it's still fairly collaborative but ultimately you know final decision is more on me as a solo artist and so i guess both things are beautiful and and i'm 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 happy to experience both of them yeah um you know one of the things about being a musician though and especially over the course of this pandemic is you you have the opportunity to kind of go deep just in your laptop or with your guitar or your piano where you're writing the songs, a very, very uh, independent personal thing. 
And that's a beautiful thing, but that gets old after a while too. And then you actually miss people and you Mm -hmm. miss throwing the conversation, the musical conversation and the literal conversation around the room and kind of seeing what happens. So, um, just, you know, there's, there's ups, uh, pros and cons to both situations. Yeah, I can see that. I imagine that it can be kind of isolating if you are trying to just work independently and not collaborate mm-hmm. at all. If you're spending hours and hours just writing and preparing music yourself without anyone to get feedback from and kind of bounce mm-hmm. ideas, I imagine that that is a little bit more challenging way to do it, right? It's more challenging in that respect that you're not getting honest feedback and you're also not, you're not engaging in the collaborative process, which I think is at a neurochemical level, probably really, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, on the other hand, I mean, so, I mean, sometimes when I start with a song, I have a very, very clear vision of what I want to do with it. In that case, I'm kind of happy to be on my own because I can basically do whatever I want to execute that vision. Mm-hmm. But there are other times where things start and I'm like, I don't really know what this is. I don't know where it's going. And I would love to have more of a perspective on it. And I, I would also say that if you only work as a solo artist or you work, I mean, this is applicable to probably a variety of other uh, experiences, fields in life, where if you're always the boss, if you're always the sole creator, if you don't actually, if you're not forced to interact and really collaborate with other people in a way where people are kind of equal to you, um, both creatively and also I guess, with respect to the hierarchy of the organization, mm-hmm. it can definitely encourage a sort of narcissism that's probably not a healthy thing. I'm not saying it's always unhealthy. I'm just saying if your whole life is that, you're probably missing out on some important perspective that uh, is available. Mm-hmm. So, But I'm happy to experience both things. And right now, I'm actually very happy to be running kind of my own program. One, because the severity of the pandemic continues to kind of move up and down and restrictions lighten and then they, you know, they come back and it's, it's, it's actually a really hard time to plan anything with a group of people Mm -hmm. because you just don't know what the future looks like. So actually right now is probably a good time to be a solo artist, but I I love both experiences. I know that the, what's your genre, what kind of music do you make is the worst question to ask a musician because it's always hard to describe, but I am curious about not necessarily what specific genre you're drawn to, but how you market yourself as a musician in a world with a whole variety of potential audiences. I think I used to listen to a lot more music. I still listen to a lot of music, but I used to be more involved in finding new bands and like actively engaged in the music seeking process when I was younger and less so now that I'm a little bit older. What do you try to do when you're figuring out who your audience is, what kind of music you're making? Like how and where do you position yourself in this big picture of the broad music scene that ranges all the way from electronic dance music to folk music to classical music, country? There's all these different genres. What do you think about when you're trying to figure out where am I in all of this and who am I trying to reach? Yeah. Well, by the way, I actually, especially the way that you put that question, I think it's a fantastic question. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I hope that some of these answers are valuable in the sense that I I don't actually have a perfect answer to it, but I'm just, I'm almost kind of throwing this, this is going to feel conversational because I'm working through the answers to a lot of these all the time. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, just as we were sort of discussing at, at at the coffee shop the other day, there's so much music out there and barriers to entry have been massively reduced. And that's often a good thing, but 
barriers to entry have been reduced, but so have the quality control gatekeepers. And I mean, that can border on sort of a pretentious statement. But I think if we're going to be real, there's some truth to that too, because there's an awful lot of really, really amazing stuff out there. I think there's also an, an awful lot of garbage, frankly, mm-hmm. and I don't mean it I don't mean it to come from a pretentious point. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's made with very little care and very little intention only because it's easy enough to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's necessarily the center of the bullseye as an artist, you know, if I would say anything. So it's a strange landscape to trying to be navigating because what I generally hope that I'm doing is putting out the work that is the most sincere, authentic reflections that I'm feeling as an artist. And obviously that's going to be massively influenced by the by the artists I like. Mm-hmm. But I also hope that it evolves too. You know, I was even thinking as I'm writing new music now, some of the production style that I'm kind of leaning towards is stuff that I've done so many times on solo recordings or with a novelist. I'm kind of like, hmm, you know what? Maybe you should try to stretch this a little bit. And maybe the way to stretch it is actually to for example, get production help from an outside producer or even like your band that you're working with, like really, really commit to giving them free reign instead of coming in and saying, hey, I hear this bass line, just being like, here's what I've got so far. What would you do with this? Or, you know, even I've been working with Chris Sexton, who's, you know, in the Sextones and various other bands, just an incredibly creative keyboard player. I've been trying not to be too specific, which sometimes can be hard when you kind of have this like leader personality. Sometimes just like, just dude, just check that and let, just see what he comes up with. And pretty much every situation, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I never would have thought about it. And it brings it out of the realm of like sounding exactly like what I've done too many times already. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's like this, it's this, you have to find this balance between staying true to you and embracing the sound that is you. And at this point, I've been doing this long enough that I do have a sound, but I don't want it to be such a perfectly predictable sound that it's not interesting. I want my sound to grow because I don't want to be the same person 10 years from now that I am today in any way. Yeah, I think if you think of most of the most successful artists who have been working for decades and decades, they have a distinctive sound that you will recognize, but they also Mm -hmm. develop over the course of their career and their early work does not sound the same as their later work. Absolutely. And that's especially true with the ones that one that I think are fantastic artists and two, the ones that actually survive because you, you hear these one hit wonders and even just one album wonders that maybe created something that's fantastic, but they didn't evolve. And that probably had something to do with why that was the first and last thing you ever heard from them. Mm-hmm. Now, there's that. I mean, there's also, it's interesting too, because I find just as, again, some of these topics we touched on the other day, but like I find the world of attention and um, marketing and business and just, I guess, how the, the social aspects of society, I find this stuff really, really interesting. And there's there's no way you can deny the fact that it's just absolutely intertwined with the way we make music, the way we consume music and the way we think about this stuff. And it's, it's an interesting thing because if you just think about like a business, for example, and you read a book about how to succeed in business, you know, some version of the first few chapters is going to be, well, you have to find a product, you know, so let's, you know, find something that is basically underserved, but really people need, right? Okay, that's cool. So then you do that. And then, you know, how do you, how do you do it in such a way where you're adding more value at a lower cost and and so on and so forth? And then you know, get into marketing and how can you actually sort of essentially, if we're going to be real, 
try to encourage people to consume things that they really don't need for the most part, even if you believe in your product. Yeah. You know, and so there's there are these ethical considerations that, again, I, I'm not even saying I have clearly defined opinions on, but we have to acknowledge that they're there. I mean, even selling a CD at a show, I mean, now it's a CD is a sort of a relic, but like even in years past, I remember thinking, okay, what sort of strategies can we implement so we can sell more CDs? And then it sounded like some levels like, well, yeah, selling CDs we want to do because we want people to hear our music and we need to make money for this to work. But like, does this person really need my CD? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, oh, don't even think about that. That that feels awkward. But it's like, no, no, let, let, let's get real here. And the answer is no, they don't. But the way you reconcile that is you go, well, actually, I do believe in what I'm doing. I do believe in what I'm putting out there. I mean, it's not like I'm selling them cigarettes or something like <laughs> <Right>. that, <laughs> you know. What I'm saying is the reason where it's just interesting with an art form is because certain producers or even people that have advised me in my life have given me the advice of, you know, you could tweak certain things, I would say pretty significantly. They're just assuming that the goal is a hit and a breakout song and to become a famous musician. Mm-hmm. And well, I'll be totally real, like the idea of having a breakout hit would be fantastic and uh, like full on let's do it. The reason why that's a motivating factor to me is because I do believe in what I do. Yes. Two, it would make so many other decisions in my life much easier if I was on a national tour and was able to consistently pay my bills and maybe even retire someday as a musician, which is like kind of a rare thing, right? So I don't have any problem acknowledging that. But insofar as I have to like really majorly change what I'm doing artistically so that I could try to accomplish that. I'm not into that. I'm not even sure that it's, I'm not even sure that I could do it if I wanted to, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not into doing it at all. And so sometimes that puts you in a really strange position too. actually writing a mainstream pop music hit is not an easy thing to do for one. And it's also not an easy thing to just get people to hear it. It's an incredibly hard thing. So I'm not trying mm-hmm. to suggest that this is just a decision you could make and have success. But a lot of people in my career pushed me in that direction, thinking that it's possible and thinking that it's the center of the bullseye. And it's like, they have the best of intentions and I'm not making a judgment on their ethics. It's it's not exactly how I feel I want to go with it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do find that there are artists like Sarah Bareilles and John Mayer, you know, and uh, I was even listening to some Jason Isbell this morning. And I'm not generally a huge country music fan, but I just am in love with this man's music and writing and whole story at this point. What I found really interesting is that, you know, Jason Isbell is the furthest thing from like the Rascal Flats or somebody who's trying to be like a up the middle country pop artist who's going to sell records. I'm not saying that that this guy has never made any compromises because perhaps he has. And I'm also not saying I like I've never either like, you know. There's certain creative trends, and that's not something I'm, I have any problem with embracing. I just don't think, I think you've been corrupted on some level if your only desire is to make a hit. I think I think you've, you must be confused about why you got into this initially. But the Jason Isbell thing, for example, like he's had tremendous success. Now he hasn't had the type of success that Britney Spears has had, or something like that. But that's totally fine with him, I'm sure, and it would totally be fine with me. And the, what I think is interesting is that he's had success or Ben Folds, for example, where they have had some pretty major success, but they do it in a way that is actually still sincere to who they are. And that's one thing that's really interesting about the landscape that we're in now creatively, whether it's podcasting or it's music. I'm still hopeful that 
most people can find their audience. And that's an advantage to the internet. Like you don't need to be Paul McCartney or Beyonce to have an awesome career as a musician. And you don't need to sell out to do it either. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about being a successful local artist is that you can build a career and a following and be successful in a way that is not necessarily a giant hit. You know, you can make a career in music doing the kind of work that you do, which I think is a, a great thing. Let's talk a little bit about Reno and kind of your experience here. So I know you're now on the Reno Arts and Culture Commission. You're involved in Art Town. You did the Heartbeat to Heartbeat Eye to Eye video last year. You moved to Reno in 2008, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in Reno's music world since you got here and how that has worked for you, your ability to make the music that you want to make, to perform in the type of venues that you want to perform in, just kind of Reno as a music city in your experience over the time that you've been here? Yeah. Well, it's certainly grown in unimaginable ways. I mean, it's been amazing. And I think mostly in really good ways to see what's happening. This was also something that became clear over the past years of touring with a novelist. We'd go to other cities and First of all, we would actually get recognition from being from Reno. People would, instead of not knowing where that was or having no response at all or a negative response, but, oh my gosh, that's so cool. We we just met Buster Blue, who were also from Reno or whatever it was. I think even nationally, we're starting to get some recognition, which I think is frankly well-deserved. But yeah, 2008, 2009 was a totally different time culturally, musically, economically to be in Reno improvement is never a a linear thing, but it's been really interesting to see that the city kind of grow and the arts and culture scene really flourish here. There's a lot going on for a city of this size, and it's not just in music, although there is a strong music scene across the, the field, you know, the genres. There's a strong art scene in all sorts of other mediums as well. It's been really cool, the Reno Arts and Culture Commission thing. I just got appointed to that a few months ago, or actually at this point, it's probably nine months ago. That's really been an interesting experience and super cool to sort of see how it works at that level, to see, you know, for example, how grant money is allocated and various public art projects are happening. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit what the Arts and Culture Commission is, how, how it works? Right. Yeah. Well, basically, I mean, it's a commission of... We have 12 members, I think, that advises a city council on a number of things from grant money, grant allocation, which was kind of a significant thing last year because of the pandemic, because there was a lot of CARES Act money that needed to be allocated to extremely needing groups of people and artists who were, you know, basically income was slashed to nothing or near nothing. And it also advises and, and works on, um, public art initiatives, whether it's the Space Whale or murals or any sorts of artistic projects that involve what's happening here in Reno. And I mean, there are other things too, like there's there's uh, the Winter Lights Festival, which we're working on, which is basically just a, a community arts lighting themed festival. I mean, I think the idea is that it's adding value and artistic and cultural value to the, to the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that there is this obvious concerted effort to make Reno and arts city over mm-hmm. a long time now. Art Town's mm-hmm. been going for 20 plus years. Yep. Uh, there's way more public art. We're close to Burning Man. I think that was probably a big part of the influence of Reno as an art city is that we have this big arts festival every year. It's helped It's helped a lot. And if I could just interject there too, I mean, there's, you know, as there always will be, there's, there's a fair amount of like Burning Man pushback in certain circles. And I think that uh, 
I mean, full disclosure, I've been five times, so you kind of know where I stand on that. I, I think that some of the pushback is totally legit, but when you have 70,000 people, obviously there's always going to be a group that are charlatans and that don't represent the true values of it. But I think you're absolutely right, and I have no problem saying that. The Burning Man has probably been a massive net positive for, for Reno. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the like the arts and culture of Burning Man continues through the rest of the year because i know that we have like mm-hmm. there's all this focus around burning man when it's happening mm-hmm. but i do think there are people who live in reno who go to burning man all the time there are people mm-hmm. who create art for burning man who live here in town mm-hmm. so i imagine that it's not just a burning man specific thing but that it has kind of shaped reno more generally over the years too right Oh, totally. Absolutely. And I mean, I, there's there's just no doubt that throughout the entire year, there's massive benefit from the fact that the festival happens, partially in just the way that the community thinks about Burning Man, but also just even economically speaking. And, you know, on a cultural level, I mean, you have all kinds of businesses that are sort of geared towards that. And um, another thing that's really interesting about Burning Man, I think is really helpful for the community is that so many people in the city participate in it one way or another, whether or not they have a, a shop that maybe supplies Burning Man art or, or art supplies or something like that. Or it's just even people as part of the community that go and you go out there with a group of eight or 10 people and there's like, it encourages community even beforehand. I mean, I know with some of the camps I've gone to, we've had not large camps, but you know, 10 to 15 people and everybody is kind of like, you're, there's these pre, pre-planning meetings and you find out who's going to contribute what. And it's just, it's basically, it's a sense of purpose that really brings people together. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're actually paying close attention to the ideals of Burning Man, it's really a pretty freaking awesome, it's an awesome thing. And it's it's an awesome set of values. It's obviously, again, where there's pushback. Well, the the people that are usually receiving the pushback, certainly in situations where it's warranted, they're not really being true to those values anyway. And you can find that anywhere in life, man. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to find people who are sort of representative by uh, default of some community organization, political group, whatever it is. And you're like, well, what the heck is going on there? And it's like, well, that's not what it's actually about. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know why I feel the need to defend Burning Man, but I feel like there's been a lot. There's been a lot of, I think, unfair criticism of Burning Man lately, and I, I just, I don't, I think it's misguided mostly. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's fair. I have not been to Burning Man myself, but I generally have a positive feeling towards Burning Man in general, even though there are problems sometimes, even though there are people who are not representing what it's supposed totally. to be about, mm-hmm. um, even if it's gone a little bit out of scale. I think to this yep. point where it's. Uh, maybe not functioning the way that it was originally intended. On the whole, I'm generally happy that it's something that we have as a part of our culture. And you mentioned community as a big part of it, which I think kind of ties back into the music piece here in Reno. Live music is a community event. That is like a thing that people do to come together. And that's a lot of what Burning Man is, is people like coming together for these art experiences or music experiences. Here in Reno as far as the music community and different venues and opportunities for gathering, do you think that we are well-equipped for 
live music? Do we have the right kind of venues? One of my complaints that I've kind of had is I used to live in, in Portland for a few years and there was a whole bunch of venues, like one in every neighborhood, basically, that was a like few hundred person capacity and you would get these medium sized touring bands that would sell the place out. And I haven't seen, again, I'm not following music that closely in Reno, but I haven't really seen that same kind of atmosphere as much. We have a couple bigger venues, a couple much smaller venues. What do you see as the opportunities for Reno in terms of providing spaces and opportunities for musicians, both touring from outside of Reno and also local musicians like yourself? Like what kind of venues do you like to play? What kind of venues do you wish we had that you could play? Like what's that landscape look like? Yeah. Well, I would actually agree with your analysis of the Reno situation perfectly there, that there is a little bit of a lack of like mid-level venues because we do have, you know, we have some small spots and we have coffee shops and, and restaurants and and bars that are um, quite supportive of music that have music series. And, uh, and then you also have, you know, amphitheaters and you have the Grand Sierra, which is a beautiful theater for a 4,000 person touring act, but it's not really doing anything for a local artist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then there's kind of this like, yeah, it's kind of like the two to, I don't know, 150 to 400 person venue that's kind of lacking. And it's true. Although there's, um, there's a friend of mine who I, I know he just posted this on Facebook. So I don't know, I don't even know anything about the venue yet, but he's been telling me that this is like a, it's going to be one of the better, of course, if it's his venue, he's going to be, you know, making it seem like it's it's uh, all the rage. But I, I imagine it probably will be. It's a mid-sized venue that's opening here in town. And you also have the Saint. I mean, obviously, the, the pandemic last year basically crushed live music. Mm-hmm. And um, so it may also be a tough time, too, for anybody. I think it's this is this is Matt Reardon who's opening this new venue. But I think it's, you know, kudos to him and anybody who's taken some risk. But it certainly is a risk right now. Because mm-hmm. like we don't really know what's going on. You're talking about creating a dropping a bunch of money into a mid-sized music venue right now. That's a pretty risky endeavor. Mm-hmm. But we need them. We need them for sure. Yeah, and I I would like to think that we don't know exactly when, but we will be coming out of pandemic mode, and people will be gathering again. We don't totally. know if it's going to be this fall. We don't know if it's going to be next summer or whatever. But mm-hmm. when that happens, I think it will be nice if we have options for when people are trying to get back out. So setting the stage now, Mm -hmm. I think is probably not a bad idea for when we do have like the Mm -hmm. real recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause we had like a, a 10 week, uh, uh, false recovery. It seemed like (laughs) that was about everyone got so excited. And then it was like, Nope, psych. Me too. Me too. And I mean, even some business decisions that I made with my own small business, you know, keyword being small business, but certain investments that I made and future projects and stuff that were really predicated on having touring income. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, what do you do though? Because you can't, you can't do nothing. And I mean, I don't know that it's the best choice to make to just do nothing and then hope things clear up. And then by the time things do clear up, you're behind the eight ball, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, some amount of risk and speculation is probably necessary, but man, it's, it, you know, even uh, with the COVID situation, it's, so highly politicized it's on one hand it's laughable but it's not laughable because it's so consequential the impacts both in public health and economically are so large that it's if we were reading some fantasy book it would be laughable but it's not it's this is it's serious shit and Mm -hmm. the fact that we can't have more of a coordinated local national international approach is 
uh, a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, it's also got to be hard when you're working in an industry that's about gathering people together in the same space. I mean, in the news, it's always about these like giant mega events or it's about Mm -hmm. schools or churches Mm -hmm. or like places Mm -hmm. where people gather over and over. But you're also in the putting people in the same room business. Is it also a personal, moral, ethical kind of concern for you in addition to a business concern about how you're approaching what you do? It is. And and uh, I mean, I, I'll share a, a story. For a long time, there weren't any decisions to even be made because basically live music was just categorically not allowed. So mm-hmm. that was the decision. Like it or not, there was nothing to, to debate. There was a lot of Zoom shows and songwriting. But in the spring, when things started to open up more, yeah, it does. It does at least make you consider these questions. And the other thing, when you're playing with a band, it's not even necessarily my decision. It's the decision of the band. And just to share a couple examples here where, you know, we have been thinking about things like uh, we had a show booked up at the Red Dog Saloon up in Virginia City. And this was for my five piece band. And it was one of those days we were dealing with three, four hundred AQI, which has been the second half of the summer. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, you know, the, the venue owner contacted me and said, hey, we're thinking about moving it inside because the air quality is terrible outside. Well, we also had band members who were uncomfortable with moving it inside because of the the COVID situation. And regardless of where I might even be at with something like that, like it's a legit concern and it's not something that, um, it's certainly not a crazy concern. And it crossed my mind as well, but in this particular situation, it wouldn't have been a deal breaker for me. I would have proceeded with the show, but we didn't. I wanted to be considerate of somebody else in the band. And that's when you have four or five people. It's like, it's really unprecedented that way too, because you even have these situations with outdoor show and and, and smoke, mm-hmm. and you, you don't necessarily have a consensus of like, oh, I'm fine to play out here, I'm not, and so it's it's really a difficult thing to to manage. And there, obviously, of course, I'm thinking about the public health concerns too, because if there's a show, you know, I had a I I was part of a backyard concert last Saturday, and it barely happened because of smoke. It was the only day of the week we probably got a clearing at all, and it was still like a one. 85 AQI clearing. I mean, it was like a, a clearing based on the new normal. It wasn't even mm-hmm. clear. It was just doable. And I think everybody was so itching to actually do something and to be there that, you know, we still had quite a good turnout. But yeah, hosting that show, I wasn't I wasn't the host, you know, venue host, but it was my band that was headlining. It's like, I definitely had to think about some of these decisions like, okay, number one, how do you feel about actually encouraging people to come to a show with 200 AQI or 180 AQI. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about subjecting your band to that? And what's the alternative? Because what are the downsides of not doing the show? There's a financial issue, which is obviously secondary, but important when mm-hmm. people are not making any money. It matters. Oh, yeah. And then there's also just like the benefit of actually the community and the social benefit of doing the show for the band itself. And then there's the social benefit of people feeling not totally down and depressed because they actually went and did something. So I guess whether it's COVID or it's smoke, the decisions are not as clear as I think a lot of people make them. I think there's, I mean, I, I'm frustrated seeing this pretty much in every surrounding, pretty much every political or social issue we have is that there's so many people who are just so hardlined about things being one way or another. And that's not to say that I don't have strong opinions myself. I just, I think we would all benefit from just 
approaching everything with a little more humility because most of these things are actually quite complicated. It's usually not as simple as like, this is the answer and this is the moral way to proceed and the other way is wrong. I just, I just don't think it's like that because I have enough friends that I respect who don't agree on some of these important issues too. And it's not even maybe fundamentally large disagreements, but the nuts and bolts of like, do the show or not do the show, cancel the tour or not. It, I don't think the answers are necessarily crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I'm a huge fan of nuance and not having this binary black and white approach to the way we think about things. I completely understand it's more complex than people might think as much as like just cancel it or don't cancel it. There's a lot of factors. Um, so I, I see where you're coming from there. Mm-hmm. I wish we didn't have to think about any of it at all, actually. I mean, that's a major thing about even how do we plot you plan as a band? How do you do this? Like, how do I, I originally in July thought about trying to book um, a show at the Nugget showroom, which is actually one of these, you know, I mean, it's still associated with the casinos and can be kind of hard to get into, but I was toying with the idea of booking the Nugget showroom, Celebrity Showrooms is a gorgeous room and it's about 600. So it's kind of on the bigger side of what you'd call a medium venue. But Mm -hmm. I thought, and this was in July, beginning of July, when COVID numbers were basically, I mean, nearing zero and going the right direction, where I think pretty much everybody was like, well, this is over. And I was thinking, okay, well, I'll book something in the fall there. And uh, with a little bit of luck, we would probably sell that venue out. And I'm glad I didn't do it because even now it's not, I mean, certain venues are doing stuff and they're obviously there's a highly contentious uh, topic of, of vaccine proof or masking or any of that stuff. But as early July, I didn't think any of that would even matter anyway. I thought we would just be, we were in the clear and turns out we're not. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you start thinking in these absolute decisions, you can get a plot twist that'll Mm -hmm. (laughs) that'll add extra factors pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Art Town didn't happen in the normal form last year, but one of the big things to come out of Art Town during the pandemic was this music video that you did, Heartbeat to Heartbeat, Eye to Eye. Can you talk a little bit about where that idea came from, who was involved in it, and the story of that video and what you did for Art Town last year? Yeah, so basically right around Memorial Day, I got an email from the city and the city of Reno, Art Town, and the Philharmonic had, based on a challenge from Mayor Sheevy, decided to decided to participate in this uh, National City Song Initiative. And it started in St. Louis and the whole idea was that Cities around the country would would independently write and produce their own kind of COVID isolated music videos and songs in an effort to spread goodwill. The mission was simple, stated that way. And I got this message, and I was like, "Oh well." My initial reaction was that I was incredibly honored, you know, to be asked to do this. And then that was followed probably about ten minutes later with this unbelievable a sense of anxiety of, "Oh my gosh, like you just agreed to this project." now what you know how are you going to do this and you know they had it on a month time frame and i think we had some zoom meetings and we we basically just kind of got more into kind of what the mission was and there was a blueprint because st louis had already done this song but the idea was for me to basically co-write and co-produce a song basically spearhead the project but it was supposed to be and it was very collaborative basically we wanted to write this song that sort of had some reno signature but also was eclectic as far as its message, its cast, its production. I mean, it was a project that I was immediately excited about. But again, I was already going through, oh my God, there's a landmine here, there's a landmine here, there's a landmine here. <laughs> and then kind of almost immediately, uh, as I dis- as I had agreed to take on this project, 
the killing of George Floyd happened and all of the the riots and social unrest that ensued from that hit, which the song and the project was never supposed to be about any of that specifically anyway. It was supposed to be, I don't want to say benign because that makes it seem like it was unimportant, but the idea was to have an uplifting message from the city. But then you find yourself in this political, social climate that it was just a hard thing to navigate because you certainly can't ignore what's going on if you don't want to be, I think, legitimately criticized for that and also just seem totally tone deaf. I mean, it's just... Mm -hmm. So anyway, one side committed to it three or four days in, the nature of the project, the scope of the project necessarily expanded and only became more stressful. What I will say is that ultimately, I think we, we meaning the writers and Brian Evans, who was the, the producer of the video project, we, we worked on that collaboratively, but um, much of his brain was, was the concept of how that, the video actually came together. And uh, uh, Tom Gordon, uh, both of these guys are extremely close friends of mine and, and colleagues from over the years, but Tom Gordon, who co-produced the audio and all the writers and everybody who participated, I will say that as far as I'm aware, there wasn't even any tension regarding process and messaging. It actually felt like one of the most beautifully clear, synergistic things I've ever participated in. If there's anything about the project that I'm, I don't know if proud of is even the right word. I think that's a that's a strange concept, but that I'm very happy that it, that it happened this way and that it came through was the fact that it really, it almost came together magically. I mean, all of the ways that I could have seen it being a disaster, none of that happened. And, you know, hiring Jeff DiPoli to write strings and Kalila Smith-Cage and Kate Cotter helped me with uh, lyrics. None of it ever felt forced, not even a little bit, which is very strange because I have a lot of experience writing and producing music with other people. And the truth is, even some of the, the most amazing final products usually come with a fair amount of arduous work and tension and conflict. Mm -hmm. This didn't happen like that. It really came out beautifully. So I mean, it took a little longer than we thought. It took two months instead of one month. But the truth is, you know, the one month kind of uh, goal was completely absurd. Even by day three, we're like, there's no way this is going to work because even just the scheduling of people and you can't do any of the choral stuff as a group because of COVID. So everything was done individually mm. and then multi-tracked and put in, you know, together. So I'll forever be thankful to, you know, not only to Mayor Sheevy, but Beth McMillan, at our town and Tim Young and Alexis Hill and Megan Burner for hiring me to do that, for trusting me to do that. What about this year for our town? So we were back kind of in person. Yeah, pretty much in person at a new venue with social distancing and stuff. Yeah. So what was your involvement in our town this year? Well, this year, my involvement, despite what a lot of people, there's a perception that I'm like actually part of our town or like work there. I'm on the board or anything, which is, which is not true. I mean, I, I love everybody over there. They're all uh, become good friends, but they did ask me to basically produce this, uh, produce a live performance of the Heartbeat Show. And so leading up to that, I got to do, my own band was the headliner for that July 2nd evening. But the culmination was a live performance of the Heartbeat to Heartbeat Eye to Eye from Reno with Love uh, show, which was, I don't know if I could say it's the second craziest behemoth type project I had ever taken on because it was just a very different thing than the music video. But that was my entire May and June was like organizing rehearsals, sending out tracks, 
getting that performance ready. And it wasn't just like I used people only for the one song. Cause of course, you know, you're going to have all these people take time off work and rehearse and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was great though, because when our town approached me about doing this, it was like, Oh, this is really, really cool. It's gonna be a great opportunity to get the community ready. And I'm also so glad that it happened in July because again, probably may would have been too early for people's COVID comfort. Mm-hmm. And by the time we got to August, if it wasn't wildfires, it was the Delta variant. And we, we literally got this done at the only time it was available this year. Mm-hmm. And we got it, Tyler Bourne's got it on video with 10 different camera angles. And so there should be a really cool edit of that coming soon. Oh, awesome. What else are you working on? So I know you have an album that came out last year. You're on streaming services and stuff. Obviously, touring is kind of a challenge right now and performing with what's going on. But what are you working on now? What are you looking forward to? What's uh, What are your projects that you're excited about? Well, I have about six or seven new songs that I've already started recording. So these are things I'm probably going to drop. Rather than dropping as an album, I am going to drop as singles, I think. And I mean, this kind of goes back to the con- conversation we were having the other day at the coffee shop about you know albums and attention span and all this. But for a number of reasons, I'm going to release this project as singles. So, um, I mean, a little plug here for anybody that's interested too, if you do get on my mailing list, I'm going to, I'm probably going to drop all that stuff, you know, in segments and with some videos here and some, some singles there. I also have the whole Art Town show was actually videoed. So I'm going to kind of get that edited as it comes out and, and drop that content here and there. I am also toying around with the idea and this is, you know, there's a first, uh, you know, mention of this in any sort of public way, but probably doesn't come to any surprise. If you, if you think about what's happened with the music industry, kind of the goal, the ultimate goal for bands and artists, even 15 years ago was like, get a record contract, get a, get a record deal. Cause then you had all this infrastructure, you had the funding distribution. Well, that model is like pretty much effectively dead. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing a lot of independent musicians and you're even seeing people that were on record labels in the 80s and 90s and 2000s that are now having very successful independent careers. But what they're doing is they're, they have fan supported models a lot of the time. Um, so I'm probably going to explore something like that in the form of a Patreon where the goal is to try to hopefully encourage my fans to be patrons of my music and my career. And it's, you know, it's an interesting thing too, because it's a very different thing than I think there's still some perception of that type of model sort of being like, oh, you're an artist who doesn't want to make difficult decisions. So you're just kind of looking for a handout. Well, actually, that's not what it is at all. You have some incredibly widely known and successful podcasters, for example, and musicians who have fan supported models. And Mm -hmm. the idea isn't to, isn't to try to get people to give me monthly donations. It's a subscription service to somebody's art form. And I mean, my, my fans know that like, it's much more difficult for me to actually be lazy than not. I mean, it's just, it's just not in my DNA. I will be making something pretty much all the time till I, till I drop dead someday, but that's on the horizon too. So, so we'll see how that works. Right on. I'm actually curious about the Patreon thing because I, don't really like ad supported models that much. Although I have a couple sponsors that are local, you know, DJ trivia who I work for, and this is Reno, which I really believe in. And it's mostly just for promotion purposes. I would like ideally to do a Patreon model because I do prefer that to the ad model. I think when people are continually supporting some piece of artwork or some producer, some creator, I think that, 
makes them more invested in the product and care about it a little bit more. And people, I think, are just annoyed by ads in general. I think that ad-supported, anything ad-supported, that's like the basis of social media, which I think is super destructive. It is what makes uh, like cable television and traditional TV basically unwatchable to people now that we have streaming services. I think subscription models and Patreon models are maybe a better path forward for creators. So I'm always curious to hear about other people's experience with Patreon. So that's interesting to hear that that's kind of on the on the horizon for you. Well, and the other thing that's really cool about it, I think, is that you you can basically support somebody's work at, I mean, you can structure it however you want, but essentially at whatever you level you want. And, mm-hmm. you know, my, uh, my last two years have not necessarily been fantastic financially because as an artist who still makes a living gigging for the most part, that was shut down almost completely. And obviously it's come back a little bit, but, but generally speaking, you know, 2020 and 21 have not been my most lucrative years. That's for sure. Even in that situation, there's a few, there are a few artists and podcasters that I'll support even myself. And like when you're given somebody $7 a month, it's really, really nothing. I mean, I mean, I understand obviously if you're just at the, the very bare bones level of poverty, which I'm thankfully not. But even for most people, even going through hard times, like if you really believe in something that somebody's doing, you can probably find $7 a month to give them. And yes, there is a buy-in, I think, that the fans feel, because I certainly feel that way Mm -hmm. um, when I'm supporting somebody else. But it's also just a way to kind of ensure that you don't even subconsciously become affected in your messaging by who it is that's paying your bills in a corporate sort of way. I mean, not even necessarily corporate. It could even be a local sponsor, but you have a local sponsor. And I think that's great. I'm not saying I wouldn't do ads or that I wouldn't. I'm not necessarily even making a hardline stance on it, but I generally agree with you. If I Mm -hmm. could have it one way or another, I would prefer it to be a fan-supported model. Because, I mean, there's even this thing, like let's say you're there's a, there's a restaurant in town who's supporting your podcast at however much a month they're sponsoring your podcast. You may even be inclined, however subconsciously, to not mention someone else's restaurant mm-hmm. or mention theirs twice as often, even if you know that it's not really appropriate, or maybe you don't. And that's the type of thing that would be, I would love to avoid if possible. And as it applies to music, you also have a record label, which, yeah, it's amazing to have a record label, but they're also telling you what to write and what not to write. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that the the creative freedom that comes from not having someone that you are financially beholden to mm-hmm. is a very valuable element of having a listener supported or patron supported model. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it hasn't been an issue so far. I mean, my show is relatively non-controversial, things like that. Mm-hmm. But as it continues until maybe, this episode right, airs, man, right? All uh, this stuff we talked about, man. Yeah, uh, I know. Very, very controversial topics. Yeah, totally. Uh, but at some point, I don't know, I may do episodes that are a little more political or a little more controversial. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know that it would be an issue necessarily with advertisers, but down the line, if you build an entire podcast or program or whatever that's reliant on advertiser income, I do think that subconsciously or consciously shapes what you're able to talk about and what you're able to do. And Absolutely. The, idea of, the idea of being limited in that way is something that I am a little bit concerned about in the long mm-hmm. term. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look at cable news, for example. I mean, don't tell me that those anchors don't have life or death directives coming from their higher ups. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not saying... I don't know, maybe they actually believe what they're saying. I'm not really sure. But if they decided that they wanted to buck the trend, even you see what happens when they do, they get fired. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that the creative freedom is pretty important to me. And I'm glad that Patreon seems to be a successful way for a lot of creators to monetize the things that they do mm-hmm. and still maintain that creative freedom. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that we got to talk about Patreon a little bit because I have been thinking mm-hmm. about that a little bit in, yeah. in recent days. Mm-hmm. What else? What didn't we talk about? What else do you want people to know about Reno and music and your career? What did we miss? You know, I don't know. Um, I think we is a great conversation. I I guess one of the things that I'm I'm trying to just I guess encourage in a in a I guess in the most humble way is that speaking of uh, confrontational topics, I'm not actually going to broach one here. I'm just saying that there's a lot of stress in the world. There's a lot of stress in our community. And much of that is totally warranted. So I'm not I'm not trying to talk people out of their stress and just tell everybody to meditate. But I do actually believe, and a lot of people will just rip me apart for this one. And, and all I'll say is, I mean, if that's where you're at, bring it on. But um, I think we do have a lot more in common than we don't. I think when you can establish goodwill in your community and with people, you can definitely, you have a fighting chance of overcoming what you don't agree on. And that's, I'm not saying that there aren't, I mean, there are some really, really nasty people out there um, in members of all sorts of different tribes and ideologies and so forth. But for the most part, I think most people are not that way. And if there's anything I would say, I think it's that if there's anything that's going to help us kind of get through this really, really kind of volatile social political climate, I think it's maybe trying to remember that and I'm, I'm trying to do it too it's sometimes it's hard because you interact with somebody you fiercely don't agree with and it's really hard to try to as we were talking the other day to actually try to understand them instead of just trying to be understood and to try to see their humanity because you just want to tell them to go to hell and how could you possibly think that and so but um i don't know i, I think that there's um we probably share more than we don't and if anything's going to get us through this stuff, it's probably trying to understand other people and starting with love. Yeah. I hope that you wouldn't get any criticism for suggesting that we try to understand each other and have some common ground and decency when we engage with other people. I would hope that is not a controversial statement. I know that a lot of people get very heated about their views and their opinions, but I agree with you entirely that we have much more in common than we realize. And that is where we need to start. I think most of our conversations is finding common Mm. ground and recognizing that we're not going to agree with everybody about everything. And that's Mm. okay. It's truly okay. Yeah. We don't need to hate Yeah. We we don't need to hate each other for that. It's Mm -hmm. Mm. I've talked about this on several episodes now, but I feel like I used to be a much more judgmental person and put people in Mm. these boxes of right or wrong or good or bad Mm. based Mm. on their opinions or their politics or whatever. And there's no good that comes from that. You know, it doesn't help build relationships. It doesn't help build community. It doesn't change anybody's mind. Yeah, it's like, when's the last time you convinced anyone from that perspective anyway? (laughs) Never happens. It never, ever happens. But I do think that when you have these conversations with people that you might not agree with on major issues, but you can build some kind of, I don't know, sense of of shared community. Like we live in the same city. We we are close to each other. We're in community, Mm -hmm. whether we agree with people or not. And I Mm -hmm. think that starting with that, makes it just so much easier to to live and to actually get done the things that we can do. You might not be able to change someone's mm-hmm. mind if they have a deeply committed certain political view, mm-hmm. but I mean, if you 
approach them as a friend and as a fellow community member, maybe there's something else that they can learn from you or... Mm -hmm. Or even something you can learn from them, even if you don't ultimately adopt their view. I'm not saying somebody convinces you of something you disagree with, but it's like, oh, at least I can see how you could have arrived here. And before, I just thought you were... Uh, an asshole. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it is like understanding where people come from, Mm -hmm. I think is the root to a lot of these things. I think when we just assume people come to their views because they are inherently wrong or bad or whatever, instead of thinking like, oh, I can see why you think this. I can see where you learned this. I mean, it's just empathy really Mm is a better understanding of people I think is a great place to start. So I'm glad that that's, I'm glad that's your message too to people. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Eric. It was really awesome to talk to you. Like I said, I hadn't done a music episode, so it's cool to talk to someone who's actively working in music in Reno and seeing what that's like and what's been going on for you, especially during these challenging times. Thank you so much for coming on to talk. Thank you, Connor. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest this week, Eric Henry Anderson, You can find his website at erichenryanderson.com. Check out his work. He's really awesome. I really appreciate him coming on the show. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor and share. Let people know. Share the post on social media. Send links to your friends, all that kind of stuff. This is a brand new show. Well, kind of brand new now, but since earlier this year. And I'm still trying to let people know about it to grow the audience. There's a ton of people in Reno who do listen to podcasts who might find these episodes interesting, but they may never know about it unless you tell them. So spread the word, let people know that this show exists. It's a lot of fun for me, and I would really love for as many people as possible to be able to check it out. I appreciate your help. Spread the word, leave me good reviews on Apple Podcasts, all that fun stuff, and I will see y'all next week.